Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Over the past several weeks, I've read about, observed, participated in, uh, spoke with quite a few folks who are doing some pretty creative things in the medical device industry, triggered by, frankly, COVID-19. There's been some good stuff that's happened from this. Uh, there's been some hiccups, some challenges, but I thought we'd take a moment on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast to talk about some of these early observations and, and share some insights with you. So enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And uh, I've got a good friend and familiar uh, guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences, joining me today. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Mike, you're in these, I'll say, strange or interesting times <laughs> and throughout the world, but, you know, bringing it a little bit closer to home for you and me with respect to the med device space. I've noticed some things that are interesting with respect to new product development that have been happening as a result of COVID. And I think there's some things that might be some interesting lessons that we can apply or, or opportunities that we can explore on a go forward basis. But I thought you and I could dive into to some of these topics, you know, not necessarily COVID per se, but some of the unintended consequences, good and bad, that COVID has had on the medical device industry. I think that's a great topic uh, given today's events, John. Happy to be part of the discussion. All right. Well, one of the first topics that I think has been interesting to explore a little bit is the situation that this has had on startup funding. I know there are some folks who there's been no change. I mean, my, I'm going anecdotes from folks that I've talked to, Greenlight customers and, and other folks that I've chatted with. Some have had no challenges. Others have had a ton of challenges and some have found new opportunities. So I'm just curious to get your take on this. What have you been seeing or hearing with respect to startup funding that med device companies are faced with in, in these current times? Well, it's a great question to start, John, and as always, thanks for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your audience. With regard to funding, let me kind of quickly set the stage. As you and perhaps your audience know, I work with a very wide uh, variety of medical device companies, from the smallest of the small, from literally one or two people working in their garage or their basement, to the biggest of the big, the Fortune 50 and the even you know bigger companies. And in addition to that, I also work with several venture capital and angel investment groups. So I do have a bit of a you know perspective on the funding situation. Look, it's pretty simple. Funding today for COVID-related medical devices is obviously the priority. I've heard from a number of people that if they're developing a, a medical device that can be used for COVID, that it's a heck of a lot easier to get funding than for a non-COVID kind of a device. And this is, I think, relevant to a lot of people, not just in small companies and startups who may need to be raising money through angels or VCs or that type of thing, but also people working in medium to large size companies because they still need to get the authorization from their senior management to work on a particular device, a particular project. So I don't see this unique to small or startup companies that are taking on you know external 
funding. I think it's equally applicable to people in middle, middle to large companies for you know internal funding. But you know, just keep in mind that although funding for COVID devices is easier, as I mentioned in my EUA webinar for Greenlight a few weeks ago, I think the window for emergency use authorizations is going to be coming to a close exactly when nobody knows. But remember, John, this is an emergency use authorization. It's a temporary authorization. And once this period of uh, declared emergency is over by the Secretary of Health and Human Services, then no more EUAs will be allowed. And the ones that have been uh, authorized will be timed out. So funding for COVID devices is easier. Let's dig into that a little bit more. Funding for devices that are already on the market that can somehow be modified or changed for a COVID indication is much easier from a funding perspective as well as from a regulatory perspective than funding to get a device on the market for COVID for the very first time. I've got a number of examples. If you wanted to get funding for a diagnostic or a ventilator or something like that, it's relatively easy. However, if you're wanting to come up with something new, I've got a couple of companies that I'm working with, for example, in the area of image analysis software. And these are new products. These are not products already on the market. As a result, both the funding pathway as well as the regulatory pathway is more challenging. And then The last thing that I'll mention, John, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well, is I think it's very important for us to manage investor expectations. In other words, I had a company come to me recently from outside the medical device space. They came to me on a Thursday. They said, we want to get EUA authorization on our device so we can start selling it on on the following Monday. (laughs) And I said, well, you're laughing, John, so you appreciate my not the sort of use of humor, but here's the problem. When people outside of the traditional medical industry hear the politicians talk about, you know, faster to market, and even the FDA politicians talking about faster to market, in that context, John, faster doesn't necessarily mean, you know, what people outside of the, the medical device universe mean. So I don't care what your product is, you're not going to get an EUA through the FDA in 24 or 48 hours. It just ain't going to happen, no yeah. matter what you, you hear on the on the news or on the TV. So I think it's important for us to manage our, our investor expectations. And then the very last thing that I'll say is in the for the non-COVID device world, funding obviously is more difficult, but it's not impossible. You still can raise money to, to support a non-COVID kind of a device, but obviously because of the tremendous amount of uncertainty in the world, not just in the financial world, but in the world in general, there's not a lot of investors who are keen on, on writing checks right now. And I'm seeing that with several of the companies that I work with right now. How about you, John? So let's unpack a couple of things there. The, I, I did laugh a little bit, but it is a, a true or a valid point to consider that fast to a med device professional and fast to a non-med device professional are completely different things. So so I guess folks listening, just keep that in mind. I would also encourage people to check out, Mike recently did a, a webinar and, and he and I have talked on a podcast on regulatory strategy and pathways and things of that nature. Those are really good things for you to take part in, listen to, because I think, well, EUA represents one of those multiple different regulatory pathways that 
you know, even in non-COVID times, there might be opportunities, quite frankly, to consider, but it's not a one and done sort of thing. As far as like the non-COVID device companies and going through funding, here, here's what I'm hearing, and it's a mixed bag. I'm hearing plenty of cases. I mean, most people who are in the med device space, especially investors in the space, I think understand that this is a long play, so to speak. This is not a, a quick ROI type of scenario. Usually it's many, many years uh, and they understand it's a long, it's the long game that you're getting into. So I think some investors have been on the sidelines a little bit uh, to kind of see what happens, how long this is going to stick around. But everything that I'm hearing from the investor side is that everyone acknowledges that this is just a short-term blip, if you will. We all know that it'll be behind us sooner, I guess we hope, sooner rather than later. And we'll all get back to business as usual uh, in the relatively short term. So I think a lot of folks are geared up for that and they understand. And, and the more savvy investors realize that, you know, even if I invest in a med device company that's not doing something COVID related, there's still going to be, you know, provided that there's a market need and an opportunity and all those sorts of things, there's still a need for this type of, of product. I think a lot of folks are trying to, as best as possible, even in the investor community, maintain business as usual and realizing that there's longer term opportunities, not just uh, for the short term. I would agree. Now, I have heard some things, though, for companies that maybe are in this stage where they're doing some sort of clinical trials or clinical investigation, that there maybe has been a little bit more of a challenge, especially for non-COVID-related products. In large part, I mean, maybe obvious, but a lot of healthcare providers and hospitals and things of that nature are you know, shifting or reallocating resources to keep up with perceived demand to address COVID-related patients and things of that nature. So there's definitely been a hit on clinical trials. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, I think there's no question that the overall COVID situation is impacting clinical trials across the board. But so as not to overgeneralize, John, let's kind of break the universe into two parts the COVID-specific devices versus the non-COVID medical devices. So starting out with the COVID-specific devices, uh, keep in mind that the vast majority of devices coming onto the market right now under the EUA are nothing more than relatively minor modifications to existing devices. And as a matter of fact, I sort of equate the EUA to the 510K. In other words, to use a regulatory pun, John, the EUA is substantially equivalent to the 510K. It is not substantially equivalent to the de novo or the PMA. And what I mean by that is the EUA, just like in the 510K, there's an underlining assumption of safety and efficacy. And this is the justification why most 510Ks and similarly most EUAs do not require additional clinical data, so no additional clinical trial, as opposed to a de novo or a PMA, where, of course, there is no underlining assumption of safety and efficacy. And in those cases, you know, oftentimes we do need to do a clinical trial. So what that means here in terms of the impact right now is that for the COVID-specific devices that are already modifications of existing devices on the market, then additional clinical data is, is usually, of course, not always, but usually not necessary. However, when you look at the small number of COVID-related devices that are not me-tos, in other words, that are newer novel, then clinical data is probably going to be important. 
Uh, and so now we run into all of the logistical challenges that this whole COVID uh, crisis is, is creating in terms of quarantine, site closures, travel limitations, interruptions to supply chains, and so on. So without a doubt, uh, the COVID situation is impacting clinical trials, both for new COVID-related devices, that is, you know, not modifications of existing devices, as well as non-COVID-related devices. In fact, there have been many thousand clinical trials that have been suspended just in the last couple of months. Although I would point out, John, that many of those trials have been on the drug side as opposed to on the medical device side. Um, And clearly, we have to modify, in many cases, the protocols for these clinical trials. So my recommendation, as I've said many times in the past, John, for non-COVID situations, my recommendation is very simple. When it comes to making a modification to a protocol in a clinical trial, definitely keep the IRB notified and also keep the FDA updated as to these modifications, even if, and this is a topic that I think you and I have discussed in the past, John, even if your device is a non-significant risk or NSR device where you don't have any obligation to talk to the FDA in advance of your clinical trial, which I personally think is a huge mistake, but still, you know, keep the FDA notified as well. And just, you know, for additional reference, and we can provide this, you know, as part of the link to the podcast, if you'd like, FDA has put out a number of COVID-specific guidance documents. Mm -hmm. One of them addresses in particular clinical trials of medical products during the COVID public health uh, emergency. That was just uh, put out in in March of this year. So that's a good resource for for people to check out as well. Yeah, definitely. We'll share the link to that. I mean, and I'll share an anecdote. I was talking to a company outside of the United States, but I think it's you know it's similar situation everywhere in the world. And what they have observed, I mean, they're they're still proceeding as best as they possibly can for everything with their development. And it's and it's a non-COVID related product, but they have seen some logistical delays in their supply chain. Some of their contract manufacturing resources have have pivoted, so to speak, to other more pressing needs uh, to deal with the pandemic. And in turn, they've also experienced that the, you know, they were planning to start a clinical study, I think, and maybe it was April, maybe it's May, but but in this period of time that that's also been delayed. So they're like, well, we're still, we're still moving forward. We're just, we're pushed back probably two to three months based on current situations. So but I think it's good advice, Mike, to, to you know keep all of the stakeholders, so to speak, and involved, IRBs, FDA, et cetera. Uh, here's one of the biggest challenges I see from a, from a company's perspective, John, and it, this applies to both COVID-specific devices as well as non-COVID devices. I've got a couple of companies right now that are getting ready to begin a clinical trial. And, you know, some or sometimes all of this work has to be done in a hospital. Well, I don't know about you, John, but would you feel comfortable sending one of your employees for your company into a hospital to manage or monitor that clinical trial? You know, hospitals, you know, let's be honest, are not a great place to hang out right now. It's not going to be an easy sell to convince your employees, you know, to go into that kind of an environment. Sure. This is where I think one of the advantages of companies that are that are developing, for example, home-based kinds of devices 
they might not have some of those logistical challenges. And I've got a couple of companies in this category as well. It's obviously easier to manage a clinical trial in a home situation now, or possibly even a tertiary care situation, although I'm not sure you know, if you're going to go into a nursing home today either. But going into a, a hospital, that presents all kinds of challenges at the moment. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up that anecdote. I'm aware of a customer too, that they have a product that they've made a pivot to help you know, be a COVID situation type of product. And you know, they've had some meetings with the FDA and you know, they want clinical data and they were planning to do clinical data on their non-COVID product. And they knew that their product could benefit from actual results. So it's an it's a NSR, non-significant risk type of product. And you know, they drafted a protocol where all of their employees were basically going to use this product to record data. And you know, they've been working pretty closely with the FDA on that. So they found a creative, valid solution to try to get some of this data that didn't necessarily require them to go on actual patients or to nursing homes or, or whatever the case may be. So you know, I think creativity within reason can be an opportunity here for these types of scenarios. I could not agree more, John. And, you know, like many things in life, it's not what happens to us that, that counts. It's how we choose to respond. So on one hand, you know, some companies and some people might just use COVID as an excuse. Oh, you know, I can't, you know, do a clinical trial. Therefore, I can't satisfy FDA's requirement to show that my device is safe and effective. Therefore, you know, I'm just going to, you know, go home and, you know, cry, so to speak. Yeah. The other, you know, option, which I prefer to take is, all right, we're living in challenging times, but how can we, to use your phrase, think creatively to do what we need to do in spite of what's happening? That's, uh, you know, a lot of this, John, comes down to attitude, nothing more than that. For sure. For sure. You know, there's an interesting, maybe even alarming, I don't, trend might not be the right word, but observation, let's put it in that category that I've noticed. And this has to do more with like post-market surveillance. And I know you get probably somebody's reaching out to you probably every day. I know uh, definitely every week and we've had the same sort of thing at Greenlight where people are like, oh, I've got this amazing thing that's really going to help with COVID. And and it's really hard to to filter through those who are really altruistic about it versus those who are trying to be opportunistic. And I think it's concerning in some respects because there are a fair number of people who are trying to be, I think, opportunistic and they don't understand you know, the rules of being a medical device company. And I think they're trying to get through EUA and what have you, but, but they forget about, are unaware of or ignorant uh, to the fact that there's obligations that you have once you introduce this product. And certainly, I, I think that comes to a head when we talk about post-market surveillance. So how important, I mean, I know this is a loaded question and, and an obvious one maybe, but how important is post-market surveillance during this period of time that we're in? I'd like to take a moment to extend a personal invitation for everyone listening to attend the Greenlight Guru True Quality Virtual Summit. This three-day, three-track online event is completely free and will take place on June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. And believe me, folks, this is a must-attend experience for all medical device quality, regulatory, and product development professionals. Reserve your spot now by visiting virtual-summit.com. Dot Greenlight dot Guru will also include this link in the episode description. 
during the Greenlight Guru True Quality Virtual Summit will stream directly to your desktop from the comfort of your own home with over 30 of the industry's top experts presenting a unique, personalized experience for attendees to learn actionable tips, trends, and best practices for streamlining development of innovative devices, staying ahead of regulatory changes, and achieving true quality for your medical devices and businesses. So before we resume this episode, head on over to virtual-summit.greenlight.guru to reserve your free all-access pass now. Great question, John. And just to, again, set the stage here following what we just talked about in terms of the clinical trials, to me, post-market surveillance also falls under the, the general umbrella of clinical trials or clinical data. The only difference is in one case, you're talking about collecting clinical data prior to the product getting onto the market. In the other case, you're talking about collecting clinical data after the product is on the market. And so the very short answer to your question, John, is post-market surveillance is always very important, regardless of if we're in this COVID situation or not. But let me take it a step further. Again, I don't want to oversimplify so that let's break the world into COVID-specific devices and non-COVID-specific devices. For COVID-specific devices, I think post-market surveillance is even more important than for post-market surveillance for non-COVID-specific devices. And this is one of the things, as you mentioned a moment ago, John, I talked about in much more detail in my EUA webinar that we did for Greenlight just recently. But in a nutshell, here's what I mean by that. I'd like to, to just read a couple sentences that have become standard verbiage in most, if not all, of the emergency use authorization letters when FDA sends out, you know, this this letter to the company granting them their emergency use authorization. They say, among other things, the above described product, when labeled consistently with the labeling authorized by FDA, is authorized to be distributed under this EUA, despite the fact that it does not meet requirements otherwise required by applicable federal law. And just let me read that last part again. It's the most important part. Despite the fact that it does not meet requirements otherwise required by law. What FDA is saying there in no uncertain terms is because of the the COVID pandemic, we are purposely lowering the regulatory bar. In other words, we are not doing all of the testing on the device that we otherwise normally would do because of the importance, the criticality of the situation that we're, that we're in. As a result of that acknowledgement, in my opinion, John, and maybe some people might disagree, although I, heard, I hope not too many, post-market surveillance becomes even more important. Why? Simply because we haven't done all of the testing that we would have done pre-market. And let me just read a little bit more of what typically FDA is now putting into these letters, and then I'd love to have you uh, you know, share your thoughts as well. It's reasonable to believe that the known and potential benefits of whatever device that we're talking about here, when used consistently within the scope of authorization of this letter, outweigh the known and potential risks of such products. So once again, FDA is saying in slightly different words that we don't have all of the information that we would like to have, but based on what we do know and what we think we know, it seems like 
the benefits outweigh the risks in this uh, situation that we're living in right now. And finally, the last verbiage that I'll share from these FDA letters is based on the totality of the scientific evidence available to FDA, it's reasonable to believe that the authorized device may be effective for emergency use in treating patients with COVID during this pandemic and so on and so on. Again, based on the totality of the scientific evidence available and remember, they just said in the previous quote, they don't have as much evidence as they would like. It is reasonable to believe that the authorized device may be effective for emergency use. As you know, John, nothing comes out of the FDA in writing without being first vetted yeah. by a whole bunch of key people, including a bunch of lawyers. Yeah. So I want my industry friends to recognize and keep this in mind that there are some very significant limitations here in terms of what we know. And the very last thing that I'll mention, John, because I know you're a, a very diligent quality professional, and for most people, post-market surveillance falls under the general umbrella of quality. Well, as part of the EUA program, FDA has relaxed many of the quality requirements for medical devices for an EUA, whether they should have or not, that's a different story, but they have. But one thing that FDA is very, very clear that they have not relaxed is the post-market surveillance requirements. And in my opinion, that's the right decision for all the reasons that I just went through here. For sure. And so companies definitely have to make an even more attempt to do post-market surveillance on these kinds of EUA products, even though in spite of the challenges, it's difficult to send people out to hospitals and so on. We have to find ways, creative ways to solve that problem. I know I went through a, a lot of that uh, information, but your thoughts on any of that, John? Yeah, sure. And, and I think this is really important to emphasize. And I, I guess before I chime in, I just want to remind folks, I'm talking with Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences and he and I are chatting a little bit about some of, I'll say, lessons learned or opportunities or whatever the case may be that have manifested as a result of this these current times that have been impacting medical device product development. And we're going to talk a little bit about maybe some of the the things that we should learn and apply on a in a non-pandemic situation here in a few moments. But um, Mike, I, I do think post-market surveillance, it's, it's, I mean, for somebody that's a quality system nerd, I, I can make an argument for every one of these things being the most important part of your quality management system. And <laughs> even with that, post-market surveillance, is, it's really hard to argue that anything is more important, maybe for obvious reasons, but especially since you know, with EUA and COVID, we've seen or at least heard about a lot of non-medical device companies entering into this space with manufacturing ventilators and, and whatnot. And I, I recall, I think you shared a while back, I don't remember if you and I were just chatting and catching up or if it was on a podcast or what have you, but at one point in time, there were the FDA had issued more warning letters to companies versus EUA products that have, have been granted this authorization. And I think that's like- Almost as many, John. Almost, almost as many, many okay. And then that's alarming because, you know, just because you can produce a product does not mean there's a, this is my subtle use, not so subtle use of humor, does not mean there's a get out of jail free card with this. And you still have an obligation. There are still, these are still products that are used for, on patients, you know, maybe even the sickest of sick patients. So if you learn about something, you need to react accordingly. And, and rather than reacting, you should be proactive and going out and soliciting the feedback and 
and all the details about the usage uh, of the product to make sure that it continues to address and, and meet patient needs and do so safely and effectively. So I can't stress enough, post-market surveillance, even if some of the other QMS criteria have been somewhat relaxed, folks, I want you to, to hear that this does not mean you're not obligated to do post-market surveillance. And if nothing else, I mean, don't do it because it's a regulatory criteria. Do it because this involves patients and we're trying to improve quality of life. So uh, hopefully that's reason enough to, to do this sort of thing. I couldn't agree more, John. And just to tie up this part of our conversation, you know, of the many COVID-specific guidances that FDA has put out in the last uh, two months, there is a guidance specifically on post-market surveillance for medical devices during this particular pandemic. So we can put a reference to the website on that. Sure. And then finally, for all of those people in our audience who are working on non-COVID-specific devices, PMS is always important, but it's even more difficult to do now for all the obvious reasons, but it's not impossible. And so once again, we cannot and we should not use this COVID situation that we're in as an excuse to not do post-market surveillance or to somehow, you know, rein it in. We still need to do it, but maybe we need to do it in a slightly different way. Maybe we need to sit down and to use your phrase from earlier, John, think creatively and figure out, okay, we've done post-market surveillance for our device in the past this way, but because of this COVID situation that we're in right now, it's not easy or it's maybe it's not even possible to do it that way. So what is another way that we can skin this proverbial cat? At the end of the day, as long as it gets done, I don't care how we do it, but we should not use the COVID situation as an excuse not to do it. Yeah, and that'll be a good segue into probably the remainder of the conversation that we're going to have today. I'll start first, you know, more local with Greenlight. I mean, we've been in a work from home situation since early March, and that was a, a challenge at first because we're all used to being in co-located in the same place at the same time. And so we've had to, you know, get somewhat creative to make sure that we're we're you know, using screen shares and video conferencing and all these sorts of things. So we, you know, we've had to get somewhat creative to figure out how to keep our business operating as close to normal as we possibly can. I mean, despite all being now in completely different locations. But I've seen some other really interesting things, I think, come out of this, interesting in a good way. And I'll, I'll start first with some of the product development initiatives that I've seen. I mean, I, I know of at least a handful, probably more like a dozen of companies who have been somewhat creative in their development efforts and, and created some sort of a, a pivot. Uh, a couple of companies come to mind. I'll, I'll leave their names out of it uh, for the time being, but I know one company was developing a, an, is developing a needle-type device, and they actually pivoted and, and started developing swabs for like COVID tests, and you know they're producing something like 500,000 swabs a week, or I, I think it's a week, to keep up with the demand. And I know of another company who was, you know, developing a product and they they had the, the in-house expertise and and knowledge. And so they pivoted and started developing emergency use ventilator. And you know, another company that that formed um, to make uh, PPE devices just to keep up with this demand. So and a lot of these things have gone from you know idea to working prototype to animal testing. Like within a couple of weeks, and I'm like, that is awesome. That is exciting. And then, and then it begged the question, at least for me, why don't we do this on a normal basis? <laughs> 
I wish I had an answer to that question, John. <laughs> I really do. Why is that the norm, uh, or why isn't it the norm rather than the exception? And, you know, so this whole idea of agile development, you know, I think a lot of people, when they hear that, they're like, oh, that's for software, and it's not really for my product. I have an electromechanical device or, a, you know, purely mechanical product. But, you know, I think there's been some really cool things that have come out of COVID from an agile development perspective for a lot of non-software related products. And, you know, I go back to way back and the way back machine for my career, we didn't call the agile wasn't, wasn't a, the phrase hadn't been coined. I don't think at that time I'm old enough to predate that term, but I always approach this in my own product development practice to be agile, to prototype often, learn something, iterate and so on. And, try to get this product that I'm developing to the market as quickly as possible within reason. And it seems like there's something we can learn from this, not just from agile development, but seeing some of the creativity and innovation that a lot of folks have embraced as part of this COVID situation. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to put a positive spin on, you know, on something like COVID, which is, you know, of course, very difficult to put a positive spin on. I agree with you, John. I, you know, when I started out as an R&D engineer in this business 30 years ago, I never heard of this thing called agile development. It's a relatively new phrase. Um, And so just for giggles, I kind of Googled it and I came up with a few definitions. And one of the definitions that I kind of um, picked out was it's an approach to product development that emphasizes incremental delivery, team collaboration, continual planning, and continual learning instead of trying to deliver it all at once near the end. Well, some of the things that you pointed out, John, are certainly you know part of that. Like, for example, working collaboratively as a team, especially when people are not able to physically get together like they would have in the past, and doing this over you know Zoom or the other kinds of you know services that people are using today. Okay, that's fine. That's a benefit. But as an engineer, that doesn't really excite me. That doesn't really you know sound like anything new here. You know, one of the lessons that I learned early on as an R&D engineer, John, is that, uh, remember the adage, perfect is the enemy of good, or best is the enemy of good. In other words, if you try to develop the perfect medical device the first time out of the box, you run the significant risk of, you know, not ending up with anything. On the other hand, and believe me, it was hard for me to learn this lesson. It took quite a long time. If I develop a device that's not perfect, that's like a starting point, and then I test it and figure out a way to make it, you know, change it, make it better. And then I test it again and figure out a way to change it, to make it better. In other words, it's that incremental approach. I think that's, in my opinion, John, that's the the fundamental idea of agile development. And if that's the case, then what the heck is new here? I mean, this is the way that we've been developing products for a very long time. Well, so to be able maybe, to, but to uh, you know, to if a, I can interject ahead, for a moment, um, yes, please. I talked to a lot of medical device product developers, and and while there may, you know, from your perspective and my perspective, there may not be anything new here. What I hear, the anecdotes and the stories that I hear, is that this agile methodology is still it's not very widely embraced in our industry. I think there is this perception that, you know, we get the idea on the front end, engineers and product developers put their heads down and they might not, you know, pull their heads back up and engage, you know, be collaborative outside of my project team. I might not engage 
uh, key opinion leaders or, you know, clinicians until much, you know, it could be years uh, down the road before I engage them. And that's just like, whoa, this is crazy, right? So, so I think there is, I don't think there's anything, quote, new here, but I think there is something we can learn from this as a, an industry that uh, we should be adopting agile development more ubiquitously than we currently do. Well, again, John, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is a bad idea or that we shouldn't adopt some of these concepts. On the contrary, I think if we can get you know products through, as, as you just mentioned, in weeks to days, as opposed to months or some cases years, then that's wonderful. And whatever things that we do to encourage that, I think is what's most important. You know, Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name still smells as sweet. So whether we call it agile development or, you know, something else, I don't really care. It's the concepts, it's the techniques that we use to get us there more quickly, more efficiently to allow us to develop important products in in weeks, maybe even days, and to be able to pivot, like you say, to address a current need. That's what's most important here. I don't want to, you know, our audience to miss the message that I'm trying to deliver. For sure. It seems like there's also been some upsides and positives on the regulatory front, you know, specifically FDA and EUA. And it seems like there's been some pretty good responsiveness from from the agency. What are your experiences in, in these current times? Yeah, I think overall FDA is still being as responsive as they have been in the past. Whether they've been responsive enough in the past, that's a, you know, I'll leave that as a rhetorical question. But I think the level of responsiveness during COVID has been, for the most part, similar to, substantially equivalent, if you will, to their level of responsiveness prior to COVID. There have been some logistical changes, as you can imagine, John. As you know, I do a lot of pre-subs. Usually, most pre-subs I prefer to do face-to-face. You know, everybody's in the same room. Of course, that's not happening now. So we're doing these pre-subs virtually over teleconference, which by the way, is not perfect. And I've had some of my companies recently ask me if we were able to do the pre-sub in the traditional on-ground way as opposed to virtually with teleconference. Do you think we got would have gotten a different result or a different information? I've had some companies ask me, you know, should they postpone pre-subs until after this COVID crisis goes away and we're able to, to start meeting physically again? like we used to. These are questions that all companies have to uh, wrestle with. There's no, there's no you know, perfect answer. There's no perfect solution to all of them. But the thing that really com- concerns me the most on the regulatory, John, and you alluded to this a few minutes ago, is the simple fact that FDA has now issued almost as many warning letters to companies as they have EUAs. And the reason why that is troubling to me, first of all, don't even get me started about companies that are, you know, if you want to say, taking advantage of the system by, for example, making claims about a product that they should never make or not doing certain testing that they really should, you know, and using COVID as an excuse. The, the other reason why that this concerns me is just from a simple resource perspective, the more resources that FDA has to spend in terms of, you know, time and money and so on to chase after these people that are not doing things, you know, that are kosher, so to speak, the less resources they have to apply to the companies that you and I work with that are the legitimate companies that have legitimate technologies that are, you know, making legitimate claims. So I think that's one of the things that's not being reported in all of the noise, all of the chatter out there is the opportunity cost that some companies are inflicting on the rest of us because FDA has having to spend their limited resources doing things 
things that or frankly, John, if we lived in a world where we didn't need the FDA, then we wouldn't have that problem. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And, you know, kind of wrapping things up on today's conversation, you know, there have been a few other, I think, I don't know how to label this appropriately, but we'll just say interesting reactions. I know Amy has come out, AAMI has come out with some guidance for different testing criteria. I know you uh, recently shared with me, Avamed has a code of ethics with respect to compliance that that they've published and that sort of thing. So, you know, and, you know, FDA has come out with, I don't know, not less than a handful of different guidance documents. So it does seem like there's quite a bit of responsiveness, but to heed your warning, I mean, or your caution, I do appreciate that too. And it's it's unfortunate that some folks do seem to be taking advantage of the environment in a way that's creating a lot of, well, I don't know what it's going to create. I think um, you know when we get some time and distance between present day and, and a future state, we can explore, maybe look back a little bit to see what kind of, I hate to use the word damage, but I'll use the word damage has been done that we'll now have to undo as a result of, of all this emphasis on EUA. So, it's really an interesting time, especially for this industry. I couldn't agree more, John. And bottom line, you know, we are living in a difficult time. There's no question about it. But that's not an excuse to do things that we shouldn't do or alternatively not to do things that we should do. You and I, you know, uh, our, our relationship goes back many, many years to some of our original conversations about the design controls. And I've said many times that there's yeah. nothing in the design controls that I don't consider to be prudent engineering and that we should be doing these things regardless of whether the, you know, the government requires us to do things or not. Well, I would say the same thing about the situation that we're in right now. COVID is not an excuse to be sloppy. It's not an excuse to be unprofessional. I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir on this, John. I, I really am. But regrettably, we both know, just look at, you know, what happens in the in the press, you know, every week, almost every day, where, you know, companies are getting smacked for making claims that they shouldn't make and so on. And to me, when it comes to claims, Regulatory 101 is very simple. You can make any claim that you want as long as you can support it. That's, you know, applicable to COVID as well as non-COVID products. So I say to companies, if you want to claim that your medical device treats cancer and regrows missing limbs, then by all means do it. But first, show me the data to support it. Same thing with COVID. Exactly the same thing. Anyway. No, that's good. And I think that we'll let that kind of be the final word. So just to kind of summarize for folks, you know, this this current pandemic situation is not an excuse for cut corners. You still need to do your prudent engineering. And while there may be some things that are more relaxed from a compliance perspective, there's still an expectation and a responsibility that you have to make sure you're following through on post-market surveillance. So, folks, uh, appreciate you all listening to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. I'm sure there will be more conversations that Mike and I will have about, uh, well, all things quality and regulatory, I suppose. But uh, be sure to stay tuned for future episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear.